0: Well, as you know, if you've been here with us or been watching online, um, we've been going through a series this, this year, this whole year. It's, it's all about being a disciple. And we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount in particular. And, and this, is, this is a series that's connected to the previous series, which is on how to be a healthy church. Because as we've said, what else are we doing here if it's not to be a healthy church? So we spent time from October forward saying, what is a healthy church? And if you need a reminder... Uh, you can go online and listen to all those sermons uh, or watch them if you want to see my wonderful um, face as I'm speaking. But if you're tired of it, you can just listen to the podcast. And on the back of your notes in your in your program, key reminders of what a healthy church is from Romans 12. And so I try to, um, you know, connect everything we do back to that. And we've kind of come to this understanding that a healthy church is a community of disciples who are learning together, being transformed, serving together as one body in Christ. It's not a bunch of disciples learning on their own or serving on their own. Oh, that's good, and if you're doing that, great, but that's not what a church is. A church, and we're all called as disciples to be part of a church— Is a community that does these things together and does them in love and does them for for God's glory. Well, when we got to the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 moving forward, um, Jesus is is trying to tell his followers this is what disciples do, this is what disciples think, this is how disciples feel, Uh, this is what disciples think are important. And he's just going to keep going. And sometimes he's very specific. And I think it's curious um, that, that two of the first three or four things that he talks about have to deal with marriage. They have to deal with that, that relationship that's so fundamental. It's so fundamental to his plan. And we have to get that. One of the things that... that I think can transform our churches and transform our society is when more and more Christians understand that incredible responsibility that's been placed on Christian marriages to be a display, to be this display of, 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 of God's great love for us, of the, that wonderful, beautiful, perfect love between Christ and the church. It's where we're supposed to be doing that. I think if we did that, we would be more careful about who we marry. We would talk more before we got married to say, can we do this? This isn't just about us being in love. This isn't just about us raising children. This isn't just about us doing what society does. This is about us saying, together, for the rest of our lives, we are committing to being a witness in our relationship, a witness a testimony, a symbol, a sign of the love between Christ and his church. I think we'd be slower to get married. I think we would, we would take counseling more seriously. I think if we went to a church and, and the pastor said, Oh, great, you know, um, you, know you guys want to get married? I'm so glad. When the day that you would immediately leave and find a pastor who takes it so seriously that says, we need to make sure you're ready because you have been given a sacred responsibility. It's not what the world says marriage is for. Fundamental. Fundamental. You see, when just the husband and wife are in, in the home, that's that's already kind of played out. But when we, when we start bringing children, we actually get this, this little mini society there in our homes. People of different generations. And, and in Jesus' time, you know, there would have been extended family. There may be three or four generations uh, living together. They're different ages, different genders. And they're... Still individuals, but they're related and they're working together. And that that home became a, a, a little picture of what of what um, Paul told Timothy about how do we how do we continue to, to, to stay connected to truth? He says we keep passing down the values, we teach. But we don't just teach. Because you see, I can tell you guys anything. But you don't know what I do the rest of the week. So I can tell you anything and you might go, yeah, that sounds good. sounds like it's from the Bible. That's pretty good. Pastor must be doing that. But you don't know that. But when you're in a home, when you're in a home and you start really teaching, not just getting your kids to memorize scripture and, and say back doctrines, but you really get them to understand what it means to follow Christ. What it really means to be, to be filled with his spirit and love and grace and forgiveness. And you really start doing that and they're with you 24 hours a day. And they see you. They see how you react to that cashier that's going too slow today. Chatting up everybody in line, not knowing how busy your schedule is. They see how you you talk about that waiter or waitress or that person who cut you off or that guy at work. They see it. And you can kind of fake it or you can kind of say like, oh, I'm only going to talk about these things on the side. But they see it. So the values we pass down... I think we sometimes have gotten this wrong. We think it's just about making sure the kids come to church and making sure they know the stories and memorize some Bible verses and that's the values we're passing down. No, it's what they see. It's what someone said, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, they weren't even talking about millennials, they were talking about Gen Xers. And, and the person said, you know, when you start criticizing young people today, or when you can start criticizing anybody younger than you today, ask yourself this question, who raised them? Who's really to blame? The children or the generation that raised them? So important to God's plan. So important. You see, the world understands the general concept that we need love in the world. But the world has decided to make up its own definition of love. In fact, the world thinks its definition of love is superior to the Bible's definition of love. Because the world's definition of love doesn't have that sin thing involved. It just basically says, let everybody love each other, get along. As long as you're not hurting anyone else, be happy. Don't care about right and wrong. Don't care about sin. Don't care about ethics. Just love. In fact, if you do care about those things, you're really not loving. So the world thinks it has a superior definition of love. But I think part of that is because they don't actually see. They don't actually see enough symbols of God's love. The world needs these examples. They need to see this. They need to see God's unconditional love starting in our homes. And so here's Jesus teaching what it means to be in his kingdom. And so in Matthew 5, verses 31 through 32, it says, Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You see, part of the problem with these verses is that people don't understand the context. And because they don't understand the context, they want to make this verse be about something that it's really not about. If you study the Bible this way, I encourage you to stop. Because it's not the way you should study the Bible. If you've never been trained and you're just reading and doing the best you can, okay. But really, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, learn to study the Bible correctly. Read it correctly in context. Because what happens is people go, you know, I wonder what the Bible has to say about divorce. And so, what do they do? Well, back in the old days, we got one of those big books called a concordance. And we opened it up, and all of the English words were in alphabetical order, and we looked for the word divorce. And then we went to all the Bible verses that talked about divorce, like here. And then we came up with what we thought the Bible taught about divorce. The problem is this just because a Bible verse has the word divorce in it, doesn't mean that it's teaching about divorce. It could be using divorce as an illustration. It could be using divorce to to further a point in an argument. There's two problems with that kind of way of studying the Bible. There's more than two, but I'll just talk about two. One is that you are assuming, without studying the context, that that Bible verse answers your question. That's a very dangerous assumption. The second problem is a worse problem. You might think, well, that one's pretty bad. I'm bringing a question to the Bible verse and trying to get it to answer a question it wasn't meant to answer. There's a worse problem. The worst problem is the reason we read the Bible and study the Bible is so that we might know God's word, God's message to us. So when we bring a question and we think that's what the Bible is talking about. We are missing the message. If you think the main thing Jesus is talking about here is divorce, you're missing the message. There's a much more powerful message. And we have to be able to understand context to get it. You see, this verse is, is, is using marriage and divorce as a as an illustration, as an example of a huge problem. And in the first century, this problem would have been more easily understood. Because because you see, in the Jewish culture that Jesus is talking to in the first century, the husband had all the power. He was the one who had a vocation. He was trained. If there was a divorce... Wife is pretty much left on her own. Maybe left on her own with the kids. Maybe not. Oh, maybe sometimes her family would take her back in, but it would be, it would be shameful. A lot of times this might mean, you know, a life that's going to be shortened, a life of hardship, a life of poverty, premature death. Oh, there were alternatives. You know, she could remarry, but think about it. Who, who's going to remarry her? Already held high in this society is, you know, the never-been-married virgin. She's been married. In fact, she's been married, and at least one guy felt she wasn't worth being married to. So if she is if she does remarry, chances are it's not gonna be for a, it's not gonna be to a better guy. These are arranged marriages, largely. Oh, she could turn to a life of prostitution. Or as we saw when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, she just finds some guy. Some guy she can live with, not get married. Not a lot of good alternatives. It's a problem. If we understand that, what we understand is that the illustration of divorce, the more, the more fundamental issue is where the, when the powerful, when the powerful take advantage of the weak. When those who have all the power want to sever a relationship and put the person who's in the inferior or weaker position at risk and danger and harm. And Jesus is saying, disciples never do this. Never. Now he's talking about divorce, and we've already talked about this, how important marriage is to God's plan. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, oh, we can have a cavalier attitude toward divorce. No, we shouldn't. But I don't want us to miss the main message. The main message is that these husbands, for whatever reason, these husbands were going to to basically force this woman into a life of hardship and poverty, or into a life of sin. And Jesus said, this shouldn't be that way. Not among disciples. You love one another. You take care of one another. We were talking about this in our Sunday school class downstairs, about if... if, if we have a healthy church, there's, there's two sides of love that happen in a healthy church. There's the nurturing, positive side of love that most Christians are attracted to. We like that part. We like to be nice to one another and all of that. And then there's the other side. There's the side that, that you have to deal with conflict. You have to deal with disagreements. You have to deal with hurt feelings and forgiveness. You have to hold each other accountable and sometimes you have to engage in church discipline. But as Paul tells us, church discipline is always about reconciliation. What does that mean? Reconciliation means not simply that we smooth over the problems. Reconciliation means we deal with conflict so that we emerge from it stronger, not weaker. I've been in situations where I've had disputes with people in, my, in the past. And, you know, we do the Christianly thing. We get together and we talk it out. And it's like, okay. And everybody's like, it's like, yeah, you know, we're for, it's forgiven. It's, it's in the past. And it is in the past. But here's the problem. Our relationship didn't get stronger. It got weaker. We didn't trust one another more. We trusted one another less. If we're doing this in a healthy way, if we're doing this, this full sense of love, not just the positive side and not just the side that has to be, you know, kind of the tough love or stricter side, but we're doing everything so that we would reconcile to the point that everything becomes stronger. That's our motivation. Our relationship is stronger. Okay, we got it. And sometimes that might mean we have to take a break, separate. But it's always with the hope of reconciliation. And so what, he's, what Jesus is, is, is talking to in this situation is that, is that these men were not divorcing with the hope that their wife would come to their senses and that they would reconcile and have a better, healthier relationship. no. They just wanted wife number one gone and go get wife number two for whatever reason. There was no desire to reconcile. And so Jesus is is putting this principle down and, and the general principle is this, that what is lawful is not always right. What is lawful is not always right. God's love is the higher standard. We see this in the Old Testament. We see Jesus, I mean not Jesus, we see God telling Hosea. Go get your wife who went to play the harlot. She went to be the, a prostitute. Go get her. Then reconcile. You see, Hosea had every right to say, nope, done. But what is lawful is not always right. What is right is what love would have us to do. What is lawful says, I want justice, justice, justice. You know, she burned my manna. I don't know. I don't know what the complaint might have been. doesn't matter. It's not about always seeking justice. Disciples look to love. They look to forgiveness. They look to grace. But again, keep in mind what I said earlier. It's not just the positive nurturing side of love. Disciples also say, sometimes love means holding people accountable. Sometimes love says, you know, means sitting down with someone who, who always has a negative edge to them and asking them, you know, why do you always got to say things that way? Why does it always come out so negative and so critical? Sometimes it means stopping. You know, maybe you're out having lunch and in, in the, the talk starts talking about somebody else in the church and it starts to turn negative. And sometimes it means stopping and saying, you know what, um... I'm gonna have to leave or maybe we can stop and pray about this. It's both. It's hard, it's not easy, but the goal is always that the relationship would be stronger, not weaker, not back to the same place, stronger, closer, more intimate. And so, when we look at this, we see, first of all, that the text is telling us that a disciple should want the best for their spouses no matter what. We have to unpack this word best a little bit. We have to understand that best doesn't mean Oh, yeah, that's why we ha- I, I got him and I got him a new car. That's why we, we, we got a nice house. No. When we talk about the best, what we, what we should be talking about is that, is that we want God to bless them. And again, Sunday school class, they got a little preview on this, so I always say they get to hear it twice, either because they need to or because they are blessed to. Um, but it's not just saying, oh, um, that, that God would bless them by helping them to be successful. No, it is saying, when you say you want God to bless someone you love, you want the highest for them, is that you want that whatever it takes for them to have that which, for which they were created, that they would fulfill their purpose, that God gave to them. Not that they think is, is is their purpose. Not what you think is their purpose. Not what you think would be good for them. Not what they think is good for them. We don't get to define our own blessings and then say, God bless me. And I don't get to define blessings for other people and say, oh, God bless them this way. No. I want the best. And it's hard. It's hard because, because we're so drawn by our culture to say the best is, is to give you know, my, my wife or my family all the best things. So what? So what if you have the nicest house and the nicest car? So what if your kids go to the best schools? So what if they miss out on what is God's highest for their lives. I wish there was a redo. I wish there was a redo. I wish I could go back and start all over and raise my children all over again. Because even though I knew better, I still would give in to culture. I so wish I taught them more at Christmas. That it's so much less about gift receiving. It's so much less about Santa. And it's not just, oh, let's throw a little Jesus in so we can justify giving ourselves a bunch of stuff. No, we would have served a lot more. We would have done with a lot less. And I'll tell you, we're on the other end now. Our daughters are grown up, and we got a house full of stuff we don't know what to do with. I wish they would find houses, and then I would surprise them by sending it all to them, right? Because they won't take it, but they don't want you to throw it away. It's a trap. But even if that reason weren't the case, even if I say my wife and I probably did better than a lot, of, a lot of parents, we still didn't do enough. And it's because of what we talked about last week. It's because culture is relentlessly teaching your children to go in the opposite way. And so you as parents have to be relentless. You cannot say, I said it. Ah, they're not going to listen, you know, Kids got to be relentless relentless doesn't mean doesn't mean mean doesn't mean strict it doesn't mean rigid it means relentless it means doing things my wife does way better than me and telling telling our girls you know we pray for you every day i pray for them every day i don't tell them that they need to know they need to know when 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 you know, when they have decisions to make, that if they seek my counsel, I'm not just, I'm never going to say, hey, uh, whatever makes you happy. If they ask me about some guy that they're, that they're, they're dating and maybe they want to get serious with, I'm not ever going to ask the question, oh, does he make you happy? No, I'm going to be Relentless. If my daughter is faithfully following God with her life and she wants the highest that God has for her, my question is going to be, is he doing the same thing? Because if he's not, don't marry him. Stop it now. The reverse is true too if my, if my daughter is not following. And as much as I would love for her to, to start you know, um, you know, dating some really strong Christian guy? I might not tell her. I might tell him, stay away from my daughter. She will pull you down. You are not going to bring her up. She will pull you down. We've got to be relentless. Relentless in our love. Relentlessly looking for those moments when we can teach. You see, the disciples want the best for their spouses. They want the best for their spouses, no matter what. Sometimes the best is they're going to stay with you. And you're going to treat them well. You're going to treat them at least as well as you would treat strangers. It's funny how we kind of take a break from this, it was like we, we read where Jesus says, love your enemies, love strangers, love people in need, oh, but you can hate your spouse, or your ex-spouse. No. He says you should, at least, should treat them at least as well as you should treat strangers, you should treat them at least as well as you do your enemies. And Jesus has already laid down the standard for that. You've got to love them. And I'm not talking about stupid love, okay? I'm not talking about the kind of love that, that, that just says, oh, you know, you know, yeah, he lies all the time. And I'm, no. If, if somebody lies all the time and that's what they're going to do, their best is not that they would continue the rest of their lives lying all the time. At some point in time, they've got to know the price of lying all the time. It's interesting that Jesus brings out that sexual immorality. And one of the reasons he he specifically says sexual immorality is not so people have an out. It's not so that people go like, oh, good, because that's what people do. They read this verse and they go, oh, wait. Okay, divorce, except for sexual immorality. Okay, that's all i got to get. Get that, then I can divorce. No. The reason he says it is because if you read the Old Testament, sexual immorality was always connected to idolatry. They went together. Because a lot of the sexual immorality took place because you had these, these other cultures around Israel that part of their worship Involved things like temple prostitution. They were fertility cults. And so sex was obviously part of, of all of the things that they did. And so they're connected. And as Paul will point out later, he says, you know, if you know, we read this scripture a week or two ago, and, and he says, you know, he says, you know, if if a member of the church goes and and commits adultery or goes out with a prostitute or something, you're polluting the whole church. It's not a private sin. You're defiling the whole body. And the reason is, is because because someone who's a part of us, and if we're really a healthy church, we're connected to one another, is now being connected to this culture outside that can be connected to idolatry. And that was what was happening. And it's that image is very strong in the Old Testament. They go together. Even the idea of playing the harlot was, was the image that was often used to talk about Israel rebelling against God. But it wasn't to be like a rule to say, oh, I can check that off. Sexual morality? no. It's because of what, what would be the reasons someone would be engaged in sexual morality and that, what damage that does to, this, to the picture of the love of Christ for the church. You see, Christian marriages, as we said, are indeed a display, and they should display God's grace. Again, it's not an empty, brainless forgiveness. Part of love is not just saying, oh, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, okay, I'm good with it. I was a little angry before. No. Part of love also has accountability attached to it. It's forgiveness with a purpose. And the purpose is twofold. One, that the spouse would get his or her life right with Christ, and become stronger. And that you and your spouse's relationship would be stronger, not weaker. Forgiveness with a purpose, not just forgiveness, has to be a reason. It has to be moving somewhere better. Christian marriages should also display God's holiness. And again, we talked about this. This is why the picture gets messed up when sexual morality is involved. This is is why the picture gets messed up when, when sexual morality is involved from church members, because it does something to the picture of even the church as the body of Christ. And if we just kind of look the other way and say, you know, that's, those are private matters, consenting adults, and we look the other way, we're just participating in it. We're, we're allowing our own community to be influenced to a point that it will start to break down, just like our society is breaking down. There is a reason that this increase, and I don't have time to go into it, so I'm not going to I may raise more questions than than I answer. But there's a reason that the things that are happening in our society, this whole thing where people are primarily identifying themselves by their sexuality, that's their primary way of identifying themselves. It's somewhere at the top of the list that this is accompanying a breakdown of our society. I can't go into all the reasons. I can only tell you this. It's one of several major factors that are happening in our society right now that means our society is going through a transformation. What we need to be is we need to be a community of faith who who we find our identity not in our spouse, not in our marriage, not in our profession, not in our sexuality, but we, we find our identity in Jesus Christ. He is all that matters. His Word we will cling to and live. He is our identity. We are not simply Christian first. Christian first implies that there's a second, third, and fourth that doesn't have to be Christian. It is not simply Christ-centered or Christ first. It is Christ always, in all things, through all things. That's how he's pictured in the New Testament. He's not pictured as just being first, and he's not just pictured as being in the center. He's pictured as the Christ who is in all things and through all things. Our marriages should be holy. That doesn't mean they got to be perfect. I hope not. Otherwise, my wife and I have failed a lot. Mostly my fault, but, you know, occasionally she gets things wrong. But they're not supposed to be perfect. It's not, if it was just a display of God's holiness, then it would have to be perfect, but it's also God's holiness and God's grace. God's grace allows us to be imperfect. Because we're always going to work towards a stronger relationship and being forgiving and loving It's not perfection. You know, Paul kind of talks a little bit about this in that kind of famous passage in Ephesians 5. And I just kind of summarize it this way. That we need to, to, to see our spouses. If we're disciples, we need to see our spouses and we need to treat one another in every way as holy as ones who were made holy through Jesus Christ, and those who are loved by a holy God. We cannot just talk about love anymore. We have to talk about holiness. God is other than us, His ways are higher. If you see society running in a certain direction, I can almost guarantee you it's running in the wrong direction. We were, we were holy when we came through Jesus Christ. We were given His righteousness, righteousness. We were made holy. We are loved by a holy God. And we treat one another in every way as holy. And when we, when we covered the passage a couple weeks ago on adultery and we talked about sex, you know, that seems weird because, because our culture seems to think that, that sex is dirty and, and it cannot be holy, and that's not true. In fact, I'm sure that, that uh, if someone says, you know, came up to you and says, you know what, we had some pretty holy sex last night, you would probably look at them like, Ah, okay, change the subject. But it's weird that we think it's weird. Because God gave it to us in marriage, husband and wife, as an expression of holiness, not an expression of lust, an expression of love. That's always given to us. And so we return to that same point we made before, that God created marriage as a witness to His love. And so without grace and forgiveness, we get a distorted picture of the church. But without holiness, we also get a distorted picture of the church. We need it all. And if you, if you ever want the great summary of love, you go to 1 Corinthians 13. And First Corinthians thirteen, you know, there's there's so much in that passage that that can be unpacked, and it and it's not love just between uh, Christians or just in in between uh, spouses. It's it's really there's no distinction in how the Bible talks about love. You may have heard this thing that Greeks had three words for love, and they had there's three kinds of love. It's not a good teaching. For Christians, there's only one kind of love. It's just expressed in different ways. I cannot say, oh, I love my wife with an inferior love, but I I love other Christians with agape love. It doesn't make sense. No, I just express the love differently. But there in 1 Corinthians 13, we have this, this great definition it's great summary of what love is. And it says in verse four, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You know, I, I, I wish that I could do this, but then I probably would never, you know, no one would ever come and want premarital counseling from me. But I wish I could make every single person, every couple that comes, bride and groom. And I will tell them, before I marry you, you need to write to me, for me a 25-page research paper on 1 Corinthians 13 and how it applies to your marriage. Don't just read it, don't just tell me you want it read at your, at your ceremony. It's just empty words. If a year from now you're not, even, you're not even doing them because you didn't understand them. No, we're a witness to his love. We need to know what that love is. So here's my six practical things really quickly. First of all, how disciples' marriages can fulfill God's purpose. One, study God's love and His holiness. Don't study it individually only. Study it together as husband and wife. And ask constantly, as you're studying what, what the Bible teaches about God's love, ask, how does God want us to express this in our relationship? What are we doing well? What are we struggling with? Study God's love and His holiness. The second thing, Learn how God's love is expressed in different situations. The expression of love is not equal to love. It depends on the situation and the people with whom you're loving. Number three, constantly learn more about one another. If, If you're truly a disciple and your spouse is truly a disciple, you are constantly growing and changing and if you do it independently, someday you're gonna figure out you're married to somebody different. No, constantly learn more about one another. There's always something more to learn. Number four, relentlessly work out conflicts and misunderstandings. Again, we, 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 we forgive with a purpose. We cannot give up. We might need to take breaks once in a while. We might, might need to say, we're gonna, this isn't gonna be fixed in a day, it's gonna take a long time and we need to take baby steps, but we never give up. And we bring in help before it's too late. And let me tell you, this is probably the, the saddest thing is that most of the time people come to see me, it's already too late, it's already too late. If you, if you see someone who needs CPR, I think the odds say one out of 10 people will be resuscitated, it's pretty late at that point. Most of the time people come to me, it's too late. One of the questions I ask people, the, usually when I'm talking to them individually is, you know, what do they feel? And as soon as someone gets to the point where they say, I don't feel anymore, I don't love them, I don't hate them, I just don't feel. Usually that's too late. Get help early, build accountability into your relationship, not just with each other, but with others from the outside. And if you're in a healthy church, this is so much easier. You have people that care about you and care about your marriage. And sometimes you just need to talk to someone just so that they slow you down before you do something stupid. And finally, have checkups, seek counsel, go to Waterhouse marriage conferences, read books. Don't wait until there's a problem. If you only go to the doctor when you have a problem or when you think you have a problem, you're putting yourself at risk. There's a reason we go for checkups. It's not, it's not only because we're sick or injured. I think our marriages need that sometimes. We need checkups. And so how disciples love their spouses, certainly this passage is is focused on divorce, but I think we can draw from it these, these, these important principles about marriage. But don't forget the big message. Disciples who have positions of power, they have a position of influence and superiority, never use it. Never use it to force others into situations where they will, they will suffer understand that.